0: Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast, for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 99, for the final third of January 2014. This third, I'm bringing you a recording of a talk that I gave while I was in Australia, entitled, The Saga of the Lunar Ziggurat. I actually gave it twice, once at the Launceston Skeptics in the Pub, in Tasmania, and once for the Skeptics in Melbourne, in Victoria. I want to give my thanks and appreciation to both groups for inviting me out, and also to Ed Brown for recording the Melbourne rendition. What you're going to hear is a mixture of both, most from the Launceston talk, but some where it was better from the Melbourne talk. Since this was live, the recording quality varies, which is sort of a nice way of saying that it's not great, but you'll get by. There is also some street noise and various other things. Tonight, I'm going to talk about the saga of the Lunar Ziggurat. And I will explain what the Lunar Ziggurat is shortly. And by saga, I mean this is something that I thought was going to be a very straightforward debunking. It take maybe a few hours, and then that was it. But it has stretched on over a year and a half. Uh, So the overview, I'm going to give a little bit about me. Um, you've you've had the handout. Some people might not want to read it all. It's very long. Um, you didn't have to copy everything from my webpage. Um, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about me first. Then I'm going to talk about the Ziggurat claim itself, and then the basic debunking that I went through in order to show that this step pyramid is probably not, that's supposedly on the lunar far side is probably a hoax. Uh, Probably. Then I'm going to talk about the aftermath, everything that has happened after that uh, over the last, as I said, two years. So about me, um, I have several degrees. I'm a recent PhD graduate um, or PhD awardee, whatever you call it. Um, I, perhaps slightly more interesting, is I became a formal, as in formal in quotes, skeptic in quotes. About 2008, you'll notice this was just after my MS in whatever I say it is, astrophysics and geophysics. That's because what I did for my PhD work was I created and then did stuff with a gigantic global crater database of the planet Mars. So I, over the last five or six years, have poured over numerous maps at varying resolutions of the planet Mars, and I identified about 240 Thousand craters, all circling by hand, um, and then got my PhD. And as you might imagine, that is an incredibly boring task. Is basically, showing up at work and drawing circles all day. So I started to try to find podcasts to listen to. I tried to find the other side to listen to, and so I found Coast to Coast AM, uh, a late night paranormal radio show. Anyone here know what Coast to Coast AM is? I do now. Okay, a few people... Before I mention that, 30 seconds ago, did you know what... So it's a a very late-night radio show done in the U.S., which I guess would mean that it's midday here. It reaches... It is probably the largest late-night talk show in the United States. It reaches anywhere from, they say, 5 to 15 million people every night. And it runs for four hours, and it is incredibly credulous. It is basically you can get on the air and talk about whatever you think is real. They've had uh, interviews with a guy who says that he co-wrote a book with a gnome. They have people talking about ghosts all the time. They have people talking about ancient aliens and all this other stuff. So when Circling Craters, I would listen to an episode of Coast to Coast AM, and then I would listen to something like The Skeptic Side of the Universe, or Skeptics with a K, or Skeptoid, or these various other things, just to sort of get that balance. I became interested in skepticism, and I thought that I had something different to offer, because I was being, and am now, a formally trained, I call myself an astrogeophysicist, so I came through an astronomy department with an astronomy background, but my degree is in geophysics because I study planetary geology. So that's why I call myself an astrogeophysicist. So I have this expertise that very few people have, you know, because... No one really wants to spend 10 years drawing circle or five years drawing circles. And what I try to do is I try to, I think, fill a niche where you have a professional academic who is trying to address misconceptions and conspiracies and hoaxes in that particular field and do it in a way that's digestible to people who don't have that level of expertise. Uh, so you can tell me whether or not I succeed at the end of the night. And if you think I do, feel free, of course, to listen to the podcast. So with that in mind, uh, let's go straight to the claim. And uh, by the way, this is, I, I don't know how you normally do it. I was told this is somewhat informal, but with a formal presentation. So if you have questions, feel free to interrupt, uh, assuming you're OK with your voice being recorded. Of course, no one's going to know your name. So should be, except for, I guess, the 20 people in here. So it should be OK. Uh, so the claim is this. And I'm going to have Richard C. Hoagland, who made the original claim on Coast Coast AM tell it to you, assuming that the audio works.
1: Do we ever go back to the moon, Mr. Hoagland? Yes, we will. What's really astonishing, and the reason I wanted to do a little update tonight is I've sent over to Lex to be posted on the Coast website an astonishing image taken from orbit. We don't know by whom yet. We're working on that. On the lunar far side, on the opposite side of the moon from the Earth, almost as far away from the Earth as you can get, almost 180 degrees almost on the equator just south of the equator a mile sized each side is a mile ziggurat it looks like an egypt a sumerian pyramid it's extraordinary it's enormous i love it it's you gotta go look because this is just absolutely astonishing and i spent now several days trying to make sure this is real And to the best of our analytical abilities, it's real. There's a whole bunch of little tells around it that tell us, for one thing, hoaxes are never subtle. This is subtle. This is the kind of thing that an expert would instantly recognize. And unless you have trained eyes, it's going to take you a minute or two maybe to see it.
0: But once you see it, you're never
1: going to not see it.
0: So that's the claim. Um, It's about a minute and a half long. This was broadcast on July 20th of 2012. So it's a year and a half old now. And this is the image that accompanied that claim. And this is not a case of pareidolia. And uh, pareidolia is where you your brain recognizes a pattern in randomness. Um, and I, I should make it clear that I've never said that this is pareidolia. This looks like a ziggurat, a step pyramid. You have a square pyramid, or at least it looks square because this is a perspective view. This was shot by the Apollo 11 astronauts as they orbited the moon. Um, and you have steps. I mean, it looks to me about three layers. And so this is a ziggurat that appears to be on the moon in this image. So the question is, is it real or is it not real? Before I get into that, I think it's important to talk a little bit about Richard C. Hoagland. And I could talk for 10 or 12 hours about who Richard Hoagland is. Um, That is not the point of this talk, but I think that it's worth talking in four bullet points a little bit about who he is and what claims he's made. Has anyone here heard of him before? A few people. Okay, so he's mainly in the United States, but he, he does get around. He goes to conferences a lot, he's been on a few television shows. Uh, Early on in his career, when he was a more mainstream guy, he was a science advisor to the very famous American broadcaster Walter Cronkite, who was once called, I think he was the most trustworthy man in America. Um, He ran, or he was the anchor to CBS News? I think so. One of the major broadcasting stations in the United States. So he was a science advisor to Walter Cronkite during the Apollo era, during those Apollo landings on the moon and that's a whole different talk that i give on the apollo moon hoax he has no known formal schooling in terms of science yet he makes a lot of science claims and if he has had formal schooling he's never made that known to anyone and when people have asked he's not responded or and people haven't really asked however he is the coast-to-coast am science advisor and those things combined should tell you a little bit both about hoagland and about coast-to-coast but Um, Moving on, he's one of the original Face on Mars guys. He did not originate the claim, the Face on Mars being that uh, there is this Mesa on Mars that was photographed by Viking in 1976 that appears to be a face. Um, It's 50 pixels tall, 30 pixels wide, much higher resolution imagery shows there is no face, but he still thinks that there's a face and various other features. Um, His big claim these days is... Hyperdimensional physics that is the real physics, and everything else that you're taught in school is the physics that sort of works, not really, but this hyper-dimensional stuff is the real physics, and he gets weird stuff out of it. Um, again, not really worth going into. There's a lot on the internet about this. Um, despite not really liking the tone of uh, the rational wiki.org Org, I believe website has a lot on Richard Hoagland and hyperdimensional physics stuff, and it explains the claims he's made, if you're interested. So, for any type of claim investigation, there are primarily two steps. The first one is to see if the claim is real, see if there is a phenomenon. The second one is, if that phenomenon is real, you need to see if, what possible explanations there are. In other words, it's just like science, really. You, investigate something and you try to find out all of the causes or all of the reasons that could cause that thing as opposed to just taking the one that you might want to be true. In this case, clearly if you have this image and you might want to believe, yes, this is a step pyramid on the moon. But could it be something else? Is there something else that could explain it if the image is real? So I've expanded this into three steps as opposed to two. This These first two are the first category. Uh, Find the original image because, again, this is an Apollo photograph, so the question is what does the original image look like, or as close to the original as we can get? Is that feature there? Then search for it, or at least that location on the moon, in other images and see if that feature is there because there's always a claim, well, Go to the quote-unquote original, but you can never go to the original film because it's stored at NASA, and every copy could have been airbrushed, and I'll get to that in a few slides because I'm getting ahead of myself. Then the third step is, if this is real, is there something else, or if, sorry, not if it's real, if it shows up elsewhere, or even just for fun, is there any reason, any lines of evidence in this image itself as to why it might be Fake. Like, is there anything in there that doesn't work right that might make you think that it's been manipulated? And finally, I should point out, and this is something that I don't think is emphasized enough, that unless you have an admission by the person who originally faked it, assuming that it's been faked, you can never prove that something is fake. You can only say that it is most consistent with the null hypothesis that this is not real, that kind of thing. And that's something that I think we we don't do enough. In skepticism, because we say, for example, ghosts aren't real. Well, no, you you just have to say, to every as far as every investigation that has ever been done that has had controls, that has had you know, any kind of um, consistent thing, ghosts are do not exist as far as those are concerned. There might still be overwhelming evidence out there yet to be found that would show that they are real. So with that, you know, I'll get off my soapbox, um, at least use a US phrase, I don't know how much things translate over here, um, and continue on. So, the normal investigation step one, find the original image. Fortunately, on the Coast to Coast AM website, the image was labeled as Apollo 11, film canister 38, image number 5564. So you can go to various online repositories, and find this image and download it. This particular scan is from the Lunar and Planetary Institute, which I I always get the LPL and the LPI mixed up. I think LPI is in Houston, Texas, or just outside of Houston, Texas, in the United States. Uh, And they house a lot of these images. And this is the scan that you will get on their website. And you can go searching through this image, and a bunch of us did. We spent about two hours back and forth on a forum, and we finally found the little thumbnail of this image where the ziggurat would be. And it's not there. One could stop right there and say, well, the LPI version shows it's not there, but it might be more interesting to investigate this further. And one could always claim, and the conspiracy people do claim, that... NASA just airbrushed this or photoshopped it or whatever image manipulation technique you want to use because clearly these are perfectly black and I'll talk more about that later. The normal investigation step two is to search for other images of that location and see if they're there. So through a a lot of searching and trying to line features up and a lot of stretching, I was able to use software that we use a lot in geophysics, uh, a lot of mapping software, to find the latitude and longitude on the moon that this shot was taken, and try to see if there are other images available. And fortunately, the moon is really close, and we have a lot of good imagery of it. Remember, Richard Hoagland said that the ziggurat was a mile wide. That's 1.5 kilometers or so. There have been a lot of missions to the moon and we've seen a lot in the last few years which has been great for those of us who study planetary geology like me Uh, so besides the Apollo astronauts we've had Clementine in the 90s which had photos at about 100 to 500 meters per pixel so that's not really big enough to resolve the ziggurat NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter has been operating for roughly the last three and a half years at the moon it has two cameras, one of them takes pictures where this table here would be resolved as several pixels across. It is a fabulous camera. The narrow-angle camera is a great camera. It also has a wide-angle camera that takes pictures about 60 meters across, so maybe roughly the footprint of this building or so. Still a great camera, perfectly capable of resolving the ziggurat if it's there. We also, if you don't trust NASA, which of course Hoagland and Mike Barra, who are the people making this ziggurat claim, don't trust NASA. They wrote, in fact, a book about NASA conspiracies. You can go to other countries. India had Chandrayaan 1. 2008 to 2009, 5 to 100 meter per pixel images. It had two cameras. China, Shangzhi 1, operated for about two or three years. It took images at 120 meters per pixel. Also perfectly able to resolve this ziggurat at about 10 to 12 pixels across. Japan, Celine or Kayuga, uh, or Kaguya, I think, uh, operated also for three years. It had a wonderful terrain imaging camera. 10 to 20 meter per pixel images, very easily resolvable if this feature is real. So, what I'm going to show you is just three images from two of these spacecraft of that area. First, we have NASA, just because I, you know, I'm American. NASA images are very easy to find because of various laws that require the release of this data, or these data because it's plural. So this image here is the wide-angle camera, 60 meters per pixel. This is full size. This is narrow-angle camera, 7% size. These images are huge. They're very nice. I highly recommend anyone who just likes to look at these things, go online and find them. They're very cool. What I'm showing you is the ziggurat area. And I'll go into how I found that later on in the talk, because there's been dispute about where it actually would be. So this is the wide angle camera image, this is the very roughly approximate footprint of where the ziggurat would be, and you can see that it is not there. Similarly, it is not in the narrow angle camera image, uh, one of the corners would be right about there. It's not there. Okay, don't trust NASA, let's go to Japan. So again, this is a 10 to 20 meter, I don't remember the exact resolution, uh, but this is 15% size, this is 100% size. Again, the ziggurat area, you can recognize it, and maybe we can go back. No, I'll just go closer. You can recognize it by those two craters, those two nested craters in the middle. And in the Japanese image, you can see those two craters right here, and you again see no ziggurat. So at this point, we have the completion of step one in normal skeptic investigations. The original image came from an online video game forum or some other online place before that. The official version does not show the ziggurat, and other images by other spacecraft and even other countries show no ziggurat. This would require a massive cross-government conspiracy to hide the ziggurat with the exact same craters and other features because you have lots of scientists looking at these images, like me who studies craters. And we map where exactly all of these craters are. And if they vary between images, we're going to notice it. And yet they don't. In fact, it's not even just the craters and the exact placement and exact sizes, but also the brightnesses. Because you have a bright, fresh crater here. A bright crater here. And it's also the texture of the landscape. You can say that this looks um, sort of... Uh, we use the term hummocky. So, uh, I'm not sure what the exact translation would be into common parlance, but you, you get the idea sort of leathery, like, like actually these sofas. It has this texture. And so in order to fake this, you can't just have one guy in a room airbrushing. You have to have a terrain constructed in your head and be able to render it at any resolution and at any lighting angle because the lighting angle is different in all of these images and there are a lot more images that i didn't show you of the same area not only that but we actually get the images from the spacecraft as rectangles as strips you'll notice that these all look wavy and that's because we do geometric corrections because the spacecraft is looking sort of at an angle and if you have topography like a crater it's going to be a little bit farther away and so be at a sort of a slightly different angle when you image it And so we have models of the topography and the elevation, and we rectify all of the images. We correct them as if we were looking straight down. And that's why it looks wavy, because of all this topography going on. So you would have to not only have a model of what this terrain looks like without the ziggurat, but you would also have to be able to convert it to whatever geometry the spacecraft was originally looking at it, and then have it match up perfectly when the rest of the scientists then download that data and correct the geometry. So to me, the extraordinary claim would be that, as opposed to it being a simple Photoshop or other type of image combination job. But out of interest, we can go further to the second part of an investigation and look to see if there's anything In the image itself that indicates that it's a possible or probable hoax. Are there any tells in this image, despite what Richard Hoagland said, if there are no tells in this, or there are little tells that it's real? Well, I think that there are two tells in this image, two primary ones, that show that it is more likely to be a hoax than not. And that's mostly can be seen in this area here, compared with the LPI version. So in this area here, we have first the shadow. You'll notice that the shadow of the ziggurat, or the this wall of the ziggurat, is facing away from the sun. So it should be, and I'll get rid of the circles, it should be in complete shadow. It shouldn't be lit up. Now there are ways on the moon to get shadows to be lit, and that's due to scattering. So. Um, the very fact that I can see any of you in this room means that light is scattering. So the lights from there, the lights from the window are scattering off of every surface in every direction. And my, light, my, light, my eyes are recording that scattered light. The same thing happens on the moon. It has a reflectivity of about 5 to 10 percent. So it's less than Earth. Earth's reflectivity on average is about 30 percent. So there are ways to get scattered light into shadowed areas. However, this is really bright. This is maybe two or three times brighter than any other shadow in the image from the Call of Duty Zombies forum. To me, that indicates it's been drawn in there or or some type of compositing because this should be much darker. The other thing is the image noise. And raise your hand if you know what image noise is. Okay, so um, in audio cables, if you've ever heard static in audio cables, like through speakers, so um, that (laughs) type sound, if you turn the gate up all the way even if there's no input, that is speaker noise or audio noise. In photography, it's the same thing except with pixel, with the color, with the lightness, with the brightness of each individual pixel. So if you take, for example, a photograph in this room now, as a few of you have been doing, it's pretty low light. If you look at that, you're going to get a lot of little speckles of color, and on something that should be evenly toned, like this wall, it's going to have little blotches of bright- brighter areas darker areas. That's image noise. That's the <laughs> type static, except represented electronically. So it's the same kind of thing. That's, uh, does that sort of explain? Image noise? Okay. So, the noise quality. Now, there are two things about noise. First is an original image is going to have the least amount of noise. There are ways to reduce the noise in an image, but you will always remove information when doing that. And that's because any type of algorithm that removes noise has to make assumptions, it has to assume certain things, like um, say we have you three in a row and you are a noisy pixel and we don't want you, we are going to try to remove you. One way to do that is by taking the average of you and you and saying that is your value. To do that, you've just assumed something. Now there are much more complicated algorithms, Uh, Photoshop probably has some of the best out there, but there are others. But in doing so, you're always assuming something. So the original image will have the least amount of noise and the most original data available. The other thing about noise is that you can add it to an image to make it look harder to make it harder to detect manipulation. So the example that I give, and you're all allowed to laugh at this, is say you take my head, chop it off here in software, not in real life, and you take then a male model, and you stick my head on the model. And you're very good at matching up the hair, or lack thereof, and various other things, but you can't get the neck quite right. You can add image noise to that image, and it'll make it harder to see that the neck isn't lined up right, because you are, by adding noise, you're making it harder to detect something. So that is a very long way of getting back to this, and just saying, and this is a pretty good projector, or screen, you can see that this is noisier than this image here. So the Call of Duty Zombies forum has this speckling, and that is grayscale noise, whereas the LPI version does not have that kind of noise. Now since then it's been claimed that, well, this is because this was an original photograph print that was sitting in a photo album, and if anyone's had a photo album from the 70s or 80s or even 90s, you can get this sort of uh, texture pattern because of the way the photographs were stored that's been claimed, that is still image noise, that is not evidence that it's more original than anything else. Uh, But for those two reasons, and the fact that it's not in anything else, uh, that is a 25-minute discussion of why I think that the Lunar Ziggurat is probably a hoax. I'm not saying that Hoagland or people who work with him hoaxed it, I'm saying that they are presenting it as real when it's most likely, the evidence, I think, shows that it is most likely to be a hoax. With that in mind, there are really good Photoshop jobs out there. People have said, well, it's impossible to get something that good. Um, You know, this is fairly good. I'll give them that. It's a good job at making it, if assuming they made it. Uh, But on the same hand, that's really good, too. And yet the only reason that we don't think that there's an Apatosaurus behind this astronaut is because we know that there aren't Apatosaurus or apatosauruses on the moon, Um, formerly known as Brontosaurus, I was recently told it's now Apatosaurus. Uh, This is a really good Photoshop job, but we know that there was not a big giant dinosaur behind this astronaut on the moon. By the same token, the ziggurat is a fairly good job, but it's most likely the case that it's not real. And so, moving forward from this, I thought that this would be a simple debunking. I posted it on my website, um, that the blog that I do, and then I actually made my first YouTube video about it, just sort of going through these things. I learned how to make a video, that was fun. I thought it was straightforward, I thought it would be done. Um, it wasn't. Believers were not happy with me. Richard Hoagland, to his credit, I suppose, stopped making this claim in fact he told mike vera his one-time co-author that he probably should not continue to argue about this because mike vera decided to continue to argue about it mainly with me and i say that with the next slide in mind his response by facebook and i'll read it is it starts out yes dear douchebags (laughs) Who have been attacking my integrity and claiming that I, or Richard C. Hoagland, faked the Daedalus Ziggard photo. Again, I did not claim he faked it, I said that he promoted it, and someone else faked it. He says he's going to utterly and completely destroy your, you, so personal attack. Uh, uh, well, obviously, personal attack, do, do, do your douchebags. Uh <laughs> I'm going to completely destroy you and your insipid analysis. I'm going to prove that NASA are the ones that have faked their image. I'm going to expose you as the idiots you are. Other than that, have a nice day. (laughs) And this was posted on his Facebook page a few days after my blog post. So that was fun. A little bit about the man, again, with Richard Hoagland. Um, I think it's important to give a little bit of background about the person involved. Mike Barra claims to be or have been an engineer, and I think it's important to point out claims because, as I will talk about later, I would not want to get into an airplane that he designed, Um, and I'll tell you a little bit about why later on. Uh, In terms of the pseudoscience type stuff, he co-wrote a book with Richard Hoagland called Dark Mission, The Secret History of NASA. He's written three books, I believe, on his own. One of them is called The Choice, which was 2012 New Age Stuff. Uh, the other two books more important for this presentation are Ancient Aliens on the Moon and Ancient Aliens on Mars, and I was just found out this morning that apparently he's working on Ancient Aliens on Mars 2. His primary method, uh, he is, uh, I, I won't say frequent, but he is on uh, the United States History Channel 2 Ancient Aliens show. Uh, he is a not-infrequent guest. So with that in mind, um, his primary method of argument is the ad hominem attack, as you can tell uh, from the previous Facebook quote. And he refuses to correct any mistakes despite being very, very wrong. Um, again, this is sort of background into the character. I don't really mean it as an ad hominem, although it is kind of fun to point out. So as an example of, of a mistake... He claims that the reason that clouds are bright in satellite photos is because they are close to the uh, the camera on the satellite versus oceans which are dark because the light has to go down to the ocean bottom and come back. That's not why they're bright and dark. They're bright and dark because of the amount of light they reflect. So moving on, what followed after this event over the next several months was that Mike ended up making various claims related to the ziggurat and my analysis that were mostly wrong, easily falsifiable. This took place over about a one to two month period of back and forth on blogs, and I thought that this was kind of over. I posted my you know, final word on the ziggurat, which is the link that I posted on Facebook, and um, then Mike continued to go on numerous radio programs and spoke at many conferences about this stuff, but it generally tapered with the end of 2012. There was a sudden resurgence about seven months later, which happened to coincide with the month before the release of his Ancient Aliens on Mars book. So I think that he was trying to drum up interest, perhaps, in controversy. Because people like controversy, you know, by our nature. We like the tit-for-tat kind of stuff, uh, the back and forth. And he also likes to claim that he's persecuted by the haters. So I had to, of course, make a blog post. No, Mike, I don't hate you. This continued with the foreword of his book in Ancient Aliens on Mars. And if you ever happen to see uh, this in the bookstore, I highly recommend picking it up and just leafing through the foreword. It is a roughly 25-page attack on me. I've made it. Thank you. (laughs) So... The paragraph of interest is, just before the completion of Ancient Aliens on the Moon, I came across an image of an object which stirred great controversy amongst the debunker elite. That's not me. But it caused even more angst amongst the skeptical small-time bottom feeders. One of those was a man named Stuart Robbins, so that's me. I'm a small-time bottom feeder. Who I mentioned in the last chapter of Ancient Aliens on the Moon. After I responded to his absurd accusation that either I or Richard Hoagland had fabricated the Daedalus Ziggurat, which again, I did not claim that, he went out of his way to answer back on his blog. Well, yes, I did, because that's what my blog is for. It's to answer claims and various stuff like this. Perhaps most important, though, or most interesting, is the first sentence of the next paragraph. As usual, he, meaning me, made a lot of assertions, many of which are false, Most of which are misleading, and some of which are just plain deceptive, which is exactly what Mike Barra ended up doing. If he had a mirror, then this statement would be very correct. And I'm going to give you a little bit of an example of some of those. Um, Is it possible to talk about everything here? Absolutely not. That would take 10 hours. Is it possible, or do I even want to address all the name calling and all of the various image manipulation? that he did on a photo of mine. No. I have no interest in that. Again, I think it's important to see the type of person that you're dealing with, which is why I gave a little bit of background. However, I am going to talk about a few of these claims. Just because, again, this sort of gets to the aftermath and perhaps the interest of this kind of stuff. First is how to locate the ziggurat, because he claimed Clearly, indisputably, I had found the real location of the ziggurat, but there was still a problem. It wasn't where Stuart, page still for NASA, said it was. It became obvious to me that he had misreported the location of the ziggurat. What he thought was the ziggurat was actually a crater just to the south of it. And he posted this on his blog. And now, if, if I may, I will use a little bit of an argument from authority. I will repeat that my thesis work, was to identify and map out 642,000 craters on Mars. If you're going to say that I mismatched craters, you better bring your A-game. Again, if I may use a little bit of an argument from authority. So Mike claimed that by matching these four craters, he clearly showed that I missed the ziggurat by about a mile. Well, this is where you get into some of the specialized tools that we have in planetary science where I can actually take the perspective view of the Apollo image and stretch it and map it by control points onto a grid and find out exactly where the ziggurat would be, which I did and which is what I used in order to claim where the ziggurat was. Not only that, but you can end up matching the craters and show that Mike actually had it rotated wrong by about 170 degrees and that it was where I said it was by, again, matching up the actual craters, and correcting for scale and various other things. In fact, not only I did this, but a listener to my podcast and reader of my blog did it in another way with, instead of the 20 or so control points I did, he showed it with roughly 50 different craters and matching up different features. And what he also showed, which I really like, is that the ziggurat image that is on the Call of Duty Zombies forum is squarish it looks like it's square because of the perspective but in actuality if you match up the craters it would be this long distorted rectangle which again is sort of another reason of okay if you're talking about these features on the moon okay normally we think of a square thing or at least a perfect rectangle this is not that again because you're thrown off by perspective so it's it's an interesting thing and again it's an interesting claim and it's it's hard to match these up, but with a lot of perseverance, you can do it. And I have to give kudos to uh, Gonda Platt, another pseudonym, for going through all of this and finding all of these craters to match up and making a, a pretty good image. Uh, so the second thing is ellipses, and this gets into, again, why I say he claims to have been an engineer, because I would not want to fly in anything he's designed. He says many of the planet's orbits, which should be perfectly circular by now, are highly elliptical. In fact, Mars' orbit is so eccentric that its distance from Earth goes from 34 million miles at its closest to 247 million miles at its greatest. So what he's talking about is they're really close to really far away. That's not how you talk about planetary orbits. And in fact, uh, to further the digs, and again, this is from his Picasso album, a uh, Google thing, that he posted... I think in coordination with ancient aliens on Mars coming out, he put in, like, little notes, like, take notes, Stuart Robbins, on how orbits are done. Because this is something that I've pointed out before on how to measure an ellipse. Because Mike seems to think that a planetary orbit is highly elliptical because of the farthest and closest distance that it gets from Earth. When the actual way you measure eccentricity or ellipticity is relative to the sun, relative to one of the focus points, it's just a bizarre kind of claim that he has made repeatedly and actually defended at least twice in writing uh, on his blog and elsewhere, obviously on his Picasso album with his Take Note and various other images I didn't show, um, it's bizarre. If you're interested in more about ellipses, I, I wrote a detailed blog post on exactly how you measure this kind of stuff. It's here, if you can remember all those weird letters and dashes. Uh, but what, what he doesn't seem to realize is that even if Mars and Earth's orbit were perfectly circular, Mars would still get really close to and really far away from Earth. That's why we only launch stuff to Mars roughly every two years or so, because that's when the orbits line up so that they're really close. It's just a a bizarre kind of claim to try to defend. Another kind of claim he tries to defend is pareidolia does not exist. He says the actual truth is that there is no such thing as pareidolia. It's just a phony, academic-sounding word that debunkers made up to fool people. It's actually a complete sham. The word was actually first coined by a douchebag debunker in a 1994 issue of Skeptical Inquirer. It is still a load of BS. There is no such thing. Again, just sort of this bizarre kind of claim. Um, I'm not sure why he decided to talk about pareidolia with regards to the Lunar Ziggurat because it is clearly in that image. It's not pareidolia. That is a ziggurat. The question is just, is that image faked? So for those who don't know, pareidolia is the process of seeing or the, the phenomenon of seeing a pattern in randomness. So you have clouds and people see a puppy dog. That is pareidolia. The Rorschach test, the Inklaw test, is designed around pareidolia. So this idea that pareidolia does not exist, whether it's called pareidolia or not, and it was actually at least around as far as long ago as the 1860s. Uh, anyway, uh, the, the idea that pareidolia doesn't exist is just kind of weird to claim, and yet he's also defended it many times. So, if there is isn't such thing as pareidolia, I don't know why all of you probably see faces or a full body in bubbles in a beer bottle, in dead flowers, in knots in wood, or smoke, or hair that is in front of a camera lens. So what I thought started with a simple, quote-unquote, debunking, again, I I don't necessarily like the word, but it's easy to explain, it grew into much, much more. In fact, I'm still talking about it, obviously, over a year and a half later. I think there are a couple lessons to take home from this, and I'm sure people have, you know, you've discussed this in your groups before, but I think it bears repeating, especially in this kind of context, because it was pretty obvious here, that you cannot have a thin skin. I mean, obviously... You see your picture kind of made green with red eyes and a weird helmet, and the entire part one out of five of a blog post series is a rant against you. You can't have a thin skin, the entire foreword of a book. But it does become very obvious when the pseudoscientists do have a thin skin. I think it's also incredibly important that as skeptics that you have to take that high road. Because as soon as you stoop to that level of ad hominem attack, which I'll admit I might have done a little bit in this talk, just out of humor, perhaps, but as soon as you do that, your critics are going to leap on that. Now, I've written over 20,000 words in blog post form on the Lunar Ziggurat stuff. I've given two workshops on it and about five talks about it, including this one. And maybe point... 5.1% of that material has been the ad hominem attack. Your critics are going to jump on that personal insult, despite flinging their own. As a, perhaps, next follow-up, when Mike was on last on Coast to Coast AM a few months ago, I think in September, um, he ranted about me again. He named me, and George Norrie, the host, uh, sent me an email being like, why does he hate you so much? I have no idea. Maybe because I show that he's wrong. Um, I, I can't believe I've impacted book sales of his, because I'm not that widely read. But George followed up at the previous time Mike was on coach and said that he would have to debate me. And I followed up with George many times, and I got no response. George says that he followed up with me and got no response. I am more than happy, and I plan to follow up many times in January as the end of our holiday Uh, in this lovely country uh, comes to an end I will follow up in January with George and say hey remember this you promised me if nothing else at least a debate if Mike is now saying that he refuses to then I think it is only fair that I come on for at least a little bit of time to discuss what's been going on and address the claims that have been leveled against me but we will see what happens so uh, with that in mind I guess Stay tuned and I don't know if there's time for questions. Um, any feedback, of course can go to um, you have the cards or feedback at sgrdesign.net um, and I will give it to you. And that wraps up this topic for the, what is this 99th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about the podcast, you can visit the website, podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, comment on the blog post for the episode, or a comment on the Facebook page of the podcast. You can also tweet me, at pseudoastro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to send them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, tell friends, family, and two random people that you'll never meet in real life.